If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. In the 1960s, a woman named Joanne Shetler felt called to missions and eventually found herself working as a Bible translator in the Philippines, serving among the remote Belongao people. One day as uh, Shetler was working, a local man named Ama picked up an English New Testament from her desk and began to look through it. Uh, he had been helping her and he uh, knew enough English that he could pick out a few words here and there and he found his way to Matthew's gospel and he suddenly realized what he was looking at. He was looking at in chapter 1 a genealogy, a list of names tracing a family line. And amazed, he asked Joanne, you mean this book has a genealogy in it? And she said, yeah, but just skip over that part so you can get to the good stuff later. But his eyes were riveted to the page. He said, you mean this is true? He asked, and he struggled through the list of names to try and say them out loud himself. And so seeing his obvious excitement, Shetler began writing down in his own language the list of names in that genealogy. In fact, then she went to Luke's and traced it all the way back to Adam and gave it to him. This man, Amah, took it over to his village, and here's what he explained. Quote, we always thought it was the rock and the banana plant that gave birth to people, but we don't have their names written down. Look, here are all the names written down. Stephen Cole goes on to comment, the Bengalows loved Matthew's written genealogy. It proved the Bible was true. Amah came to believe in Christ as his Savior. He became an enthusiastic evangelist, church leader, and Bible translator. When the Balagal New Testament was finally dedicated, he got the very first copy. Now, it's amazing that a list of names could generate that much excitement among some people. But for Amah specifically, the excitement came in this, that the God of the Bible that he was learning about was not a myth or a fairy tale or some made-up story. It was true. The book was true. These were real people experiencing real events. Now, there's valuable truth in that for us to learn as well, but that barely scratches the surface of this supposedly boring list of names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, this genealogy. This morning, as we have gathered to celebrate Christmas together by worshiping the living God, we want to think about who this baby Jesus was and why God sent him. And specifically, we want to do that by considering his family line. So I invite you to follow along as I uh, read a text of Scripture that you probably don't hear often read in church, but has value nevertheless because it is God's Word. Matthew begins his gospel this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Anadimabab, and Anadimadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Sheatziel, and Sheatziel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. May God bless the reading of His Word. In case it's not clear, this is not exactly the kind of passage that would lend itself to our normal verse-by-verse approach, unless we uh, went back and looked and and, and saw every single name and what the Bible told us about those people. But we're not going to get that done in the time allotted this morning for the sermon. So what I would like us to do is consider the passage as a whole and try to pick up the key themes, the, the, the meaning that Matthew was trying to get us to see under the inspiration of God. Specifically, what I want us to come away from this line of names this morning is seeing this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's plans and the hopes of His people. We begin by seeing what this genealogy teaches us about God's story, about God's story. That's the first A big theme that we want to see from these verses this morning. Taken at face value, just reading through this list should at least be interesting. And by interesting, I mean more than wondering how to pronounce the names correctly. Come on, some of you were thinking about that. I know it. If you were a Jew taking up Matthew's gospel, this would have been a very powerful thing to read. Each name would have evoked a a memory uh, of long cherished stories recounting God's dealing with his people. And and frankly, it should have no less effect on us, God's people in the church. We have the same scriptures, the same story, the same spiritual heritage. We worship the same God. And if none of those names mean anything to us, it probably means we're not reading the Bible as much as we should. But beyond the individual stories, we should also see the big picture. What you have here is an amazing overview of history, specifically the history presented to us in the Old Testament. Like a a large painting that spreads across an entire wall in these stories, we see a beautiful depiction of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Matthew divides up the genealogy into three different parts. The first section is verses 1 through 6, which shows us the origin of David's line. Uh, There we saw how it went from Abraham, the father of Israel, to David's father, Jesse. Then in verses 7 through 11, we see the rise and the decline of David's house. David rises to prominence, you'll remember in the Old Testament, as king. But after him, there is a kind of general decline in terms of godliness and wisdom of the kings that come after him. Until the the nation's wickedness becomes so great that they're actually exiled from the land by God. And that's where the third section picks up after the deportation of God's people to Babylon. And so in verses 12 through 17, now we see David's line falling almost into obscurity. Through the judgment of God in the exile, David's line appears as if it's going to go extinct. It ceases to rule in Israel. I mean, just think about that for a minute. The first two-thirds of that genealogy is almost a, a who's who of the Old Testament. If you're all familiar with the stories, just name after name after name after name pops out to you and you remember the events of their life. But that last third, you hardly recognize any of them. That was a problem for Israel reading this book. It presents a crisis of faith for, a crisis of faith for anyone who truly loved God and was banking on His promises. 
If you remember a few months back, Pastor Richard preached on 2 Samuel 7, where God entered into a covenant with David, and here's what he promised. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a very theological way of saying when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. God says, unlike Saul, who was, who was not a man after I went going hard, who didn't love me, who didn't follow me, and therefore I yanked the kingdom away from him, David, I'm giving it to you. And as long as there is a king on Israel's throne, it will be a king from your line. It will be one of your descendants. But guess what? In Jesus' day, there's no king in Israel. There's no Davidic king sitting on the throne, and it seems like God has broken his promises. But what runs through all these people, the good, the bad, the ups and downs, is this constant, the faithfulness of God. He always keeps His promises. You think back over what we read about these people, and we see that even when the people sin in some big, big ways, even just mentioning the wife of Uriah, we see God's chosen king, quite fallible, quite sinful. But in the midst of it, God doesn't give up. It doesn't stop with David. It doesn't stop with his next son or the son after that. It doesn't stop with the deportation. We see name after name after name. What is that telling us? God has not forgotten his promises. God remains consistent in his character despite our inconsistency and our fickleness. He is faithful. He has not forgotten his promise to David. He is fulfilling that promise in the coming of Christ. That's one of the things that is highlighted in this story that God is writing through His gracious providential acts. But we also see this story is not just propelled by the faithfulness of God. We also see it is focused on Christ. It is focused on Christ. This weekend, it seems like the whole world has been gripped by Star Wars fever. Uh, it is massive, not just for the casual viewer, but especially for the longtime fans of the series, of which I have to admit I am one. Um, though Star Wars came out about two weeks after I was born, uh, when I was in kindergarten, the local high school was running a fundraiser, and they were showing the original Star Wars film uh, for a dollar. And so uh, even though my dad, bless his heart, hates science fiction, just does not like anything like that at all, uh, he took me to go see that and sat through it even when they manually stopped the one reel and started the next reel. Uh, it was a, a sight to behold. And uh, it also made it about an extra 30 minutes longer in terms of the film. And so I was hooked ever since. Had toys, grew up, uh, saw The Return of the Jedi in the theater, and uh, it, it, it was a great thing. And um, more than just a, a casual appreciation as well. When I was in college, I can remember when they released the new films, um, there was all this talk, even in the previews, about them believing this little boy, Anakin, uh, and if you haven't seen him, sorry, but he grows up to be Darth Vader, the bad guy. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he was supposed to be the chosen one, the one who was going to bring balance to the force. And of course he didn't. He turned evil. And so my friend said, see, it wasn't him. He wasn't the chosen one. It was Luke. It was his son. He brought balance to the force. And I was like, no, oh, hold up, hold up. Just wait a second here. Well, again, spoiler alert, but they've been out for 25 years. I mean, come on. I mean, get over it. Uh, right before he dies, Vader, just like Saul, uh, uh, Samson, he turns to the light side again. And for the sake of his son, he destroys the evil emperor, thus bringing balance to the force. That was my argument anyway. Now, why do I tell you about that ridiculous amount of wasted time in college one Saturday afternoon? Uh, I'm telling you because here's the point. There's no debating about the Bible. 
There's no wondering who is the chosen one. The scripture is clear. There's no guessing. God makes it with flashing neon lights over and over again. Jesus Christ is the chosen one. Jesus Christ, the one chosen by God to come into this world in fulfillment of all of God's plans. He is the promised Savior. There is no other. And so even here, we have a genealogy that spans the entire history of redemption to show the pedigree of one person, Jesus Christ. And what God is signaling to us, what God is telling us in all this is, look, everything that I have been doing, all of my plans and promises have been leading up to this point, the birth of my son. What God was doing was leading up to him. Why? Because it's in Jesus, the fulfillment of God's story, that we see God's sovereign. We see God's sovereign. Jesus is the sovereign. He is the king that God establishes over the world. What kind of a king is he? Well, first of all, we see that he's a Davidic king. He's a Davidic king. The connection between Jesus and David is thick in this genealogy. In fact, the entire genealogy is arranged around an emphasis on David. Notice in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now let's be clear, first of all, Matthew is not saying there were only 14 generations in those divisions. You can actually go back to the Old Testament and see that's just not true. There's more people that he has left out. Rather, what Matthew is telling you is that all the generations that I have put in, all the names that I have put in are 14, 14, 14. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you they add up this way because I want you to see how Jesus and David are connected. Now, that's probably not still obvious. 14, David, Jesus, I don't get it, right? Well, how do I do? Seven plus seven, I don't understand. Well, here's the deal. Uh, in Hebrew, they did not have numbers. They just had letters. But the letters had numerical value. And the reality is when you add up the letters of David's name, guess what number you get? 14. Now, that's not Bible codes. That's not like some hidden pattern that you got you you know, to run it through a computer and do all this kind of... No, no, no. Matthew's telling you, 14. And Jewish readers go, oh yeah, David, 14. So what is he saying? David, David, David. Three times in the text, Jesus and David are connected. Why? Well, look at verse 1. Jesus is called the Christ. That's not his last name. That's his title. It's the title in the Old Testament that speaks to the Messiah, the messianic king who is going to come and reign in the line of David. That one son that will truly be, that will truly be given a kingdom that has no end. He was known as the Christ, the anointed one. And what was promised about this man, this king who would come and restore Israel, is being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is that Davidic king. But more than just the Davidic king over Israel, notice that he's also the sovereign over a global kingdom. The sovereign over a global kingdom. Jesus is not just the son of David, he is also the son of Abraham. That's what Matthew tells in verse 1. Now, on some level, that's obvious if you know anything about Israel or the Jews. Because Abraham is the first Jew. He is the father of the entire nation. If you are at all partly Jewish, you have Abraham's genes buried somewhere in your DNA, right? So it's kind of obvious if Jesus is the son of David, of course he's the son of Abraham, right? So why is Matthew telling us this? It's because he's wanting to point out that 
Jesus is not just the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. Jesus is also the fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham. Do you remember what that covenant was? We looked at it a few weeks ago when we talked about Romans 4. Well, the Cliff Notes version is this. When God called Abraham out of his idolatry, out of worshiping false gods in the land of Ur of the Chaldees, to worship and serve him, the one true God, he said, said, Abraham, follow me and I will bless you. And I will bless you in such an amazing way that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, how is God going to do that, though? Well, we see already that He's been fulfilling that promise. Did you notice the four women that were included in the genealogy? Now, as we read through it, that's rare for this period of time uh, because descent was usually tracked exclusively through the fathers. And some people make a big deal about the fact that that these, were, these women were included because they were women. And it's not wrong to notice that, but I don't think that's the point. I think Matthew is making the point that all these women were in some way tied or connected to Gentiles. This is borne out by the fact that Bathsheba, a Jewish girl, isn't actually mentioned by name. How is she referred to? The wife of Uriah. Who's Uriah? He's not a Jew, he's a Hittite. He's a Gentile. Then there's Tamar and Rahab, who, verses 3 and 5. They were both Canaanites, not Jewish girls. Ruth, she's from Moab, verse 5. Now, all these were Gentiles who at some point gave up the pagan gods that they were raised to worship, and they followed the God of Israel as the one true God. They were the beginnings, the seed form of God fulfilling the promise that through Abraham, through his descendants, through Israel, all the nations of the world be blessed. Gentiles, one by one, are trickling into and becoming inheritors of the spiritual blessings found through the God of Abraham. And Matthew is writing to help us see this because at the end of the gospel, what do we find? An emphasis on the Gentiles. Jesus tells his disciples... Those that follow after him go and make more disciples, not just in Israel, but across all the nations. Why? Because that is the means by which all of the nations will be blessed through Abraham. Jesus is a son of Abraham. He is one of the descendants that, that was promised to him by God. And it is actually through him that all the nations of the world will be blessed. It is through the saving work of Christ that anyone Anyone from any tribe, language, people, nation can experience the saving blessings of now being adopted into God's people. Thus, by showing us God's story and God's sovereign, Matthew always uh, also highlights God's salvation. God's salvation. The Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to restore Israel. And He did that, but not in the way that people expected. Rather than simply bring them together Against the Gentiles, Jesus brought spiritual unity to Israel and the Gentiles and a new one people called the church. We've thought about several things in verse 1, but don't skip over the name itself, Jesus. In some ways, that's just as much a title or a, an indicator of who this man is as much as the title. Now, in some ways, uh, Jesus as a name is unremarkable. It's just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which in English is Joshua. Many Jewish boys had that name. But it's uniquely suited for God's Son. For the name itself means the Lord saves. If there was ever a way to sum up Jesus' person and work, why He came into this world, it's that. It's in His name. The Lord saves. In fact, we see that very thing in verse 21 that was read to us earlier in the service. 
An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, your virgin bride has conceived a child, but it's not because she's been unfaithful. It's because God has done a miracle in her womb. This child is from me, God says, and therefore you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is not just chosen on a whim, but was directed by God because his name declared the very reason that he was born in the first place. He was born to save sinners. We've already mentioned the history of Israel seen across his genealogy. We see both the highs and the lows of God's people. We see the spiritual wins and the sinful failures. Just consider verses 7 and 8, for example. We see Rehoboam, as we know from the Old Testament, was a wicked king. Who did he father? Abijah, another wicked king. And yet, Abijah was the father of Asaph, a good king who sought after the Lord. He was in turn the father of Jehoshaphat, another godly king. And yet Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, who completely turned away from the God of Israel. We see that there's not an even keel there. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly. Once again, we think of these four women, not merely Gentiles, but four people also associated with sexual sin. Tamar seduced her father-in-law, Judah, so that she might have legitimate, quote-unquote, children. Ruth, though has no evident sexual sin in her life, she was nevertheless a Moabite a people group born out of an incestuous relationship. Rahab, before she helped the Israelites and uh, married into uh, the family line of Jesus, earned her living as a prostitute. And of course, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, may or may not have been complicit in David's lustful passions, and the object, but was nevertheless the object of his adultery. I mean, you think about these things, and who's in the family line of Jesus? And Douglas O'Donnell is right when he says, forget the soap opera tomorrow morning or Desperate Housewives reruns. Just give old Genesis 38 a read this week. It's pretty body in some places. Think about the section that Matthew labels after the deportation of Babylon. What is this deportation thing? Well, it's not like the deportation we're talking about now. That's for sure. Nor was it any kind of vacation time for Israel. It was not something to brag about. It was a disgrace. It was shameful for them as God's people. So, so repeated was their sin and idolatry. So deaf were they, blocking out the prophets of God who said, listen, you better get your life right. That God said, fine, my patience has come to an end and you're done. And the nations are allowed to come in and wreak havoc in Israel to lay waste to its cities and carry off the people of God into slavery once again. The very thing that God had saved them out of in the Exodus. It was a sign of God's judgment upon them. Now, do you want those kind of people in your family line? I mean, when someone says, you know, uh, well, where's your family from? So, no, we're from so-and-so place. You know, I've got, I've got prostitutes and idolaters. I've got murderers and rapists. These are the kind of people that I come from. I mean, I'm pretty sure we, we would change our name or at least not bring that up, right, if someone asked. But think about Jesus coming into the world the very Son of God who so closely identifies with those people that He stands in their family. He allows Himself to be adopted into that. Why? Because that's the kind of people He came for. The kind of people who are in need of redemption, of salvation, and Jesus came to save. In fact, all of us are those kinds of people. Going all the way back to the first man, Adam, we see humanity corrupted with sin. And we see the evidence of it all throughout the world even today. Just as God promised, sin affects our relationship with one another. Husbands and wives have to work hard for a peaceful marriage. We gripe and complain, not just with our friends and our neighbors, but with whole nations 
going to war and laying waste over ridiculous things sometimes. We also see, just as God said, that our relationship with nature would be affected. Adam was a gardener. He was a keeper of the ground. And God says, you know, it used to be easy. You just kind of, you know, lay the tool in, slid it across, and the ground opened up for you. You dropped the seed in, and fruit came out. He says, it's not going to be like that anymore. Now you're going to drop the, now you're going to drop the, the tool in and clunk, you're going to hit a rock. You're going to reach in for a flower and there's going to be thorns and thistles that poke at your hand. You're going to have to fight to do your job. Work is going to be toil and struggle now. Worst of all, our relationship with God has been broken. Now we instinctively run away from Him rather than go to Him when He offers love and grace to us and therefore we deserve His wrath. It's interesting. More than that, it's a great irony that during this time of Christmas, which we celebrate with the idea of love and joy and peace and goodwill among men. But there would be no Christmas if there was no sin. Have you ever thought about that? One of the most joyous days in the year is a reminder of our intrinsic fault. We are sinful, every last one of us. And yet this is the very reason why Christmas is so great. God did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us to our just deserts. He didn't leave us separated from Him as enemies rebelling against Him. No, He reached out to us in love and delivered over His own Son on our behalf. God in the flesh who came to live a perfect life and die a horrible, humiliating death to atone for our sins. The Bible tells us that when we understand that, when we believe it, when we confess God, confess to God our sinfulness and turn away, that He gives us new life in Him. That He stops treating us as an enemy and brings us into His own family. Think about this. Jesus willingly is adopted into a family of sinners so that sinners who deserve judgment can be adopted into the family of God. It's, a, it's an amazing picture and parallel of the love that God has shown for sinners. In the midst of the buying and the gift giving, Acts 16 announces the greatest gift ever. Jesus' apostles say this, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the, the gift of forgiveness that God gives to us this Christmas season. So how should we honor that gift? Well, some of you need to receive the gift. So some of you have an association with spiritual things. You, you attend church, but you've never actually reached out by faith and grasped hold of Christ as your Savior. Some of you have presumed to do that, but you don't follow Him as your King. The two can't be separated. For those of us that have been adopted into the family of God, how shall we honor this gift? Quite simply, by living for our King. It starts by imitating Him. Isn't that what Paul said? Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So the kind of love and grace and generosity towards sinners that Christ showed, we ourselves ought to show. Of course, there's no better way to do that than to tell of the salvation, the good news that there is in the coming of Christ. Christmas time is meant to be joyful. For this reason, we are not left in our sins. Our King has come and He has conquered sin for us. Therefore, let us rejoice and be glad this morning. Father, we're so thankful for Your Son. We're so thankful for Your Word, which teaches us clearly about Him. We're not left to, to wonder, to figure it out. Should we look for another Savior? No. Christ indeed is our Savior. 
Christ is our perfect King. So, Father, let us rejoice and be glad. Let us embrace Him by faith. Let us love Him with all of our being because He loved us at so great a cost. Father, we're thankful for Him during this Christmas season. And we pray, Lord, that when we're with family and friends and coworkers, that for us, the Christmas spirit is not just about a kind of general, general thoughtfulness and well-being with other people, but it is the spirit of Christ Himself dwelling in us that is seen through our love and our generosity and our graciousness and our gospel proclaiming. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.